group identification in general sits on top of this continuum of liberal conservative belief. So how, how group identification arise from this distribution is a non-trivial question, while we often think it's one thing. And where the boundaries are drawn are also affected by other forces of social and cognitive influences. So it's not necessarily representing the underlying distribution of what people believe on concrete issues. Whether you live in the USA or have just been watching the circus from afar, chances are that you agree. Polarization dominates descriptions of the social landscape. Judging from the news alone, one might think that the states have never been so painfully divided. Yet nuanced public polls and new behavioral models suggest another narrative. The United States is largely moderate, and people have much more in common with each other than they think. There's no denying our predicament. Cognitive biases lead us to outgroup one another even when we might be allies. And the game of politics drives a two-party system into ever more intense division until something has to give. But the same evidence from social science offers hope that we might find a way to harness our collective thinking processes for the sake of everyone and row together toward a future big enough to hold our disagreements. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. In this episode, we talk to SFI external professor Henrik Olsen and SFI complexity postdoctoral fellow, Amidiar fellow, and Baird Hurst scholar Vicky C. Yang about their work on social cognition and political identity. In a conversation that couldn't be more timely, we ask... How can we leverage an understanding of networks for better political polling and prediction? What are the meaningful differences between one's values and one's affiliations? And is the American two-party system working for or against a cohesive republic? For show notes, research links, transcripts, and more, visit complexity.simplecast.com. If you value our research and communication efforts, please consider making a recurring donation at santafe.edu give. Also, rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. You can find numerous other ways to engage at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Vicky, Henrik, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michael. I would love in a kind of roots, trunk, branches structure for this conversation, start with your backstories as researchers, like <laughs> how you got into doing the kind of work that you're doing at SFI and what motivates and inspires you to take on this kind of research. How far back are we going, Michael? <laughs> um, wherever, you're, wherever you feel like the story starts for you. Okay, I'll, I'll go first. I have a shorter story to tell than probably Henrik <laughs> being around for less. So I grew up in Wuhan, China. I was born there. Sadly, my hometown will always be known for COVID while it has many other good things. 
And then I came to the States when I was 19 years old uh, to go to college. And then I started uh, with studying physics and then applied mathematics because I liked the clear, the clarity and the rigor of, of quantitative methods and knowing things for sure. I then, um, at the same time, I also volunteered in a social psychology lab and I was running human experiments to study implicit biases about gender and about with people with foreign accents. And then I also was fascinated by that line of work because I feel like there are ways we can talk precisely about human biases and things close to everyday life. And later in grad school, it occurs to me that these two lines of interest can merge. And then I, by, by starting to look at human behavior through a mathematical modeling and a data-driven way. So I was applying the methods that I was in love with to these problems that I was passionate about. So that continued till today. Okay, it's my turn. <laughs> so, so uh, okay, so I grew up in a small town in the northern part of Sweden, very close to the Arctic Circle. Very dark in the winter and very, very light in the summer. And uh, when it came, I mean, this is going to be a slightly longer story. <laughs> uh, so I actually didn't know what to do after I finished my high school. And then all of a sudden I just found myself applying for Uppsala University. I went to Uppsala University and there I got interested in political science. So I started to um, think about applying to the uh, doctoral program in political science after I finished my undergraduate thesis. The thing was that I was also interested in psychology and I also did undergraduate studies in psychology. So I have a double major in political science and psychology. And the thing is, uh, the doctoral program then was too difficult to get in in political science. So I chose psychology instead. And that's the way it is. And then I started to become interested in, in how people make decisions. So that this kind of cross-fertilizes the political science and the psychology. So there's been a strong movement in both psychology and political science, economics, uh, about using kind of rational actor models to try to understand people and model people that way. Uh, and that would come kind of the background uh, in the basically rational choice tradition and, and game theory that started my interest in, in, in decision-making. So when I started my graduate studies in psychology, I sort of become interested in human judgment and human decision-making more broadly, but also specifically how people make judgments about uh, subjective probabilities and, and subjective probabilities attached to events and future events and actions and so on. And that led to interest in, in computational modeling because in the, in the early days of, of the judgment and decision-making was not so much cognitive plausible models of, of uh, judgment and decision-making. It was mostly models based on simple verbal theories imported from economics and so on. So we, we tried to apply like a more cognitive psychology or cognitive science perspective to judgment and decision-making. And that, that started my interest in, in computational modeling. And then after that, I got the opportunity to start as a research scientist at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, Max Planck Institute for Human Development. And there I really got into the, the importance of, of uh, interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary research, which is, of course, uh, is a hallmark of, of SFI. Because there we, uh, we have a team of, of uh, 
biologists, economists, psychologists that worked on 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 questions and started to solve them together, not uh, trenched into different disciplinary boundaries, but but actually working together on trying to understand human decision making. And then all of a sudden, I found myself or actually my wife found herself <laughs> getting offered a job uh, at, at the fire. And actually, when back in 1993, when I just started my doctoral studies, I read this book about SFI. And back in 93, I said that one point in time, I will, I will come there and I will do research at SFI. And that dream came true <laughs> just five years ago <laughs> when we moved here. And of course, coming to SFI uh, was also a, it broadened the horizons even more because before I haven't been so much into contact with, with physicists and, and mathematicians and learned about all those tools that have been developed and used by physicists and mathematicians, especially when it comes to belief dynamics. So that started an, an interest in, in, in beliefs and how beliefs change or don't change. Uh, what makes people uh, change their beliefs and what makes a belief more uh, resistance to, to change. So we started, we have now started several projects where we try to investigate the mechanism behind that and try to model that based on insights from a wide range of, of disciplines. Excellent. So just to call the the shot before I take it. I would like to weave back and forth between work that you've done with other researchers, each of you, and then work that you've done together. And I would like to start with, with Vicky, your work that you advised on for a paper with Louisa Lee and Siyu Zhang on whether or not two parties represent the United States. Then I'd like to proceed to the, the manuscript that the two of you are working on right now with Tamara Vanderdos about falling through the cracks, the modeling the formation of social category boundaries as a way of understanding the results of that first study, I think. And then Vicky, to talk about work that you've done with uh, Dan Abrams, Georgia Colonel, and Adelson E. Motter recently on why it is that U.S. political parties are as polarized as they are. And then Henrik, to, to turn to a paper that you wrote on harvesting the wisdom of crowds for election predictions using the Bayesian truth serum with Van de Brundebrun. Yeah, Van de Brundebrun. Van de Brundebrun. Uh, Mirta uh, and Pellet. But yeah, so I think that the structure here is the lay of the land. What does the American political system really look like quantitatively when we analyze it? And then why do we see a difference between the position of U.S. political parties and people's actual political positions, and then you know how we relate to one another and how that's bound up in, in identity and and the as you were saying the sort of cognitive dimensions of this, and then how we can start to understand what the political results of this deepening polarization actually going to be are you know are likely to be like how we how we study these changes in the future of the elections and so on in this country so just to start yeah vicky i'd love to talk about this paper that you advised on do two parties actually represent the united states and uh, i would just love to hear you talk a little bit about the way that this study analyzed the data and the results that it came to yeah so this project uh, started as a summer undergraduate research project. So the two authors on the paper 
were undergraduate student at Northwestern at the time. And Luisa, who who led this paper, just finished her freshman year. She is a incredible, impressive uh, person who who was, did all the heavy lifting in the study. So in this study, we took a national um, national opinion survey that surveys people on concrete issues over policy. For example, should we have government health insurance or private ones, etc. And there are about a dozen of these issues. And we had this survey over time um, for, I believe, back to the, to the 70s or 80s. So this paper is using machine learning technique of unsupervised clustering that says, uh, with this opinion data in the public, if I ask a computer to characterize it by two clusters, where are the clusters? And then uh, using that method, we find that the best description of the data we have uh, in, the, in the recent political landscape uh, is best described with a big centrist cluster and a small right-wing cluster. We also asked the question of, will have additional parties represent the system? So we looked at if we introduced additional clusters, if we allow the, um, the model to have more clusters in, to describe the data, and we use a model selection method that asks, oh, how well does it describe the data while penalizing for these additional parameter introduces? And we find, yes, indeed, uh, including additional parties, will help us represent the data better. So the current two-cluster description isn't the best. And the precise number of best parties, I think, is arguable because the like variation in how well it measures the data starts. So the benefit introdu introducing new clusters start to decay. But we know two isn't the best. We guess it's somewhere like it's between two, between like three and six. But we, we don't have a precise answer at the moment. And also because we picked out these a dozen issues may also have different weights between them, which we haven't been able to figure out. So we're it's like a sort of ballpark of where we where we estimate it is. I think that's a pretty well established, at least in the court of public opinion, that we don't have enough political parties in the United States. So this you know this brings me to the latest work that I, I have from the two of you with Tamara on how social category boundaries are formed in the first place and how it is that, you know, one of the more disturbing things that your model formalizes in this paper that is like very, very clear, I think on the ground is that anytime you have a position that's sort of in between two poles of a, of a duality, whether or not that duality is a fair representation of what's actually going on, each side will regard the people in the in-between zone as the other. Why is this? You know, why why are so many people falling through the cracks, not just in terms of political parties, but in terms of, you know, other axes of identity like gender or race? Why is it that at the individual level and at the social level, these these kinds of unfair otherings are going on? I'll take a stab at this and I'll let Henrik fill in. So, so social categorization is the process we want to model is where do people draw the boundary between us and them. With many attributes, um, people fall on a continuum. So they're not discrete boxes like Democrats and Republicans, but they have a continuous 
distribution on, say, liberal to conservative policy positions. But out of this continuum, somehow boundaries are drawn where groups are formed and people in the group think, oh, these people are us and those people are them. And we wonder, the question we want to answer is where and how do boundaries form continuum? So the way we have approached this question is we first started with a model that describes a combination of two processes. For each individual, they're influenced by two influenced by two things. One is to tell people apart accurately. That is, they want to put people far away from them in the them bracket and people similar to them in the us bracket. And then the second thing they're influenced by is they want to agree with other people in their group where the boundary is. So they don't want the group to have very different opinions. So it's a combination of a cognitive and social process. And if we allow each group to draw their own boundary and we find these two processes leads the result that the boundary is more exclusive than the middle of the spectrum. So it's the combination of both things that leads to this asymmetry. And then from that, we see that the middle becomes then seen from both sides. The background, more the psychological background to this is that um, in in many ways, uh, there's a lot of research in psychology about categorization. There are lots of different models, mathematical models, to try to understand um, individual categorization of objects. So is this dangerous or not? Is this a cup or is it a, a glass? Something like that. Uh, but um, when it comes to social domain, these formal models are not so prevalent. And there are not many models that try to integrate both the kind of the internal cultural process that we have and the, the social influence from other people. And I think what we're doing here is try to, to do exactly that, and which I also do in, in my other research, try to integrate the, the individual decision-making processes and belief updating processes with the social influence and the influence that your your immediate or the larger social network has on you. And I think that is the one main contribution, this way of looking at it, that in order to understand social conversation, we need to, to really look at both the individual and the social processes that goes on. Yeah. So one of the things that I think will feel kind of intuitively true that you were able to validate with this model is that Democrats and Republicans both sort of perceive independent voters with mistrust. And that this feels to me like, again, this is not merely a political issue, that this is something that, you know, we see, you know, going back, you mentioned in this in this paper, for example, people of mixed race, you know, or I think this is also true of, of people of mixed cultural standings, people who are non-binary and in, in gender. Let me give you more information on the, the kind of data analysis we also did with the paper that, that also showed this behavior in, in the observations. So we took political survey data and we asked how do Democrats and Republicans, which are measured by their party registration as they, they report, how do people of these two groups see three different groups of people, members of their own party, members of the other party, and the political independence. So the data we're able to get was actually the question on political independence or only asked in 80 and 84. And after 84, they threw that question out, which I'll come back to later. 
So in that data, we find that Democrats see themselves very favorably, um, Republicans less favorably. That's predictable. And then I've, the question is, how do they see political independence? If I didn't see that model, I would naively guess maybe they're in the middle of Democrats and Republicans. However, in the data, we find independence are seen as sort of the same in terms of positivity uh, with Republicans. And then the same thing happens uh, with the other party. So whether uh, for Democrats or Republicans, independents are seen as favorably as members of the other party, which means if you're independent, um, you get the worst of both worlds, that you, you don't feel you belong to, to either group, and you're not even in the middle of between my party and their party, you're sort of considered as theirs by both sides. And then when I when I saw this results, this data is um, political attitudes. And I also learned by searching from for these kinds of data, I realized there is so little um, people actually learned about political independence compared to what they know about people on the two extremes. So there is a very little data gathering about how independents are perceived and, and, and get a more detailed picture of what goes on in their lives. And the second thing I'll say is that when I saw this result, I can relate anecdotally to many of these things. For example, I grew up in China, but I lived in the U.S. for a long time. So in the U.S., I'm considered Chinese. When I go back to China, many people will tell me I'm too Americanized. So I sort of, I'm, I'm neater in a way. And there are also, um, like you mentioned, the study of, of multiracial people. One anecdotal example is Obama about how uh, in, in the beginning of his political career, he has struggled between people who think he's too Black and people who think he's not Black enough. And that kind of uh, behavior was also replicated in a number of experiments where they asked participants how they perceive an individual of mixed race and white people will think they're not white and black people will think they're not black. So they also fall through the cracks. So we think there are, it's possible that this model can be extended to other attributes and uh, it will be great if we can gather more data on that. So Henrik and I, with Tamara, we're working on experiments. One is we hope to get a more recent picture of how political independents are perceived currently, which we don't get from this national um, national survey anymore. And then we also hope to see if we um, can extend it to other attributes. Yeah, even in Santa Fe, I don't know how widely true this is in the United States, but even in Santa Fe, if you're registered as an independent, you're not allowed to vote at the local level. You know, so there's lots of ways that this damages, like, again, you're, you're talking about in that last paper, that enormous third cluster that just gets sort of punted back and forth. Yeah. What I'd like to highlight here is that there's a distinction between a group identity or identification with a party versus your what you believe in terms of liberal versus conservative beliefs. These are two different things. But recently, they're increasingly mixed up to, to feel like it's one thing, especially when we, when we talk here, here debates in the media about politics. But really, party identification or group identification in general sits on top of this continuum of liberal conservative belief 
so how how group identification arises from this distribution is a non-trivial question. While we often think it's one thing, and where the boundaries are drawn are also affected by other forces of social and cognitive influences. So it's not necessarily representing the underlying distribution of what people believe on concrete issues. Yeah, you know, you mentioned in this paper one speculative example that you offer in terms of how people fall through the cracks is the the disconnect between issue polarization and, and social polarization. And previous empirical research has found that identification with political parties and antipathy toward the opposing party increased disproportionately compared to opinion on issues. So it's like we're you know to to sort of uh, toss a line out to later in this conversation, Henrik, when we're talking about how do you poll people. How do you gather information, you know, in a way that accurately represents the landscape of opinion? There's this this question of I think, you know, both of you are familiar with the evidence that issues polling makes Americans look a whole lot more in agreement than asking the question of who are you going to vote for, and that brings us to uh, this piece on satisficing. Right. And, and the polarization of American political parties, that there's something going on here, even if you assume, as you do in this in this paper, Vicky, that the public itself does not change in their opinions over time, where they stand on the issues, that the parties can still become more and more polarized. And this is this is set aside from issues like the ones we discussed with Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West on the show earlier about disinformation campaigns and search filter bubbles and the influence of media generally on on the polarization of public opinion, that there's something else going on here. So could you speak to that? Yeah, I will first try to clarify a, a few different definitions of polarization that people tend to confuse and make this discussion really confusing. So when people talk about the parties polarizing, um, they often refer to members of Congress or, or political leaders. And so you can measure polarization in multiple ways, but for political parties, almost no matter, in multiple ways that we can measure polarization, it shows they have polarized. So for example, um, people have looking at the co-voting network in Congress, so how often congressional members are voting on the same side of the bill, and we find that congressional members of different parties are voting less and less across party lines. So that is one measure of polarization. People have also measured it uh, in other terms. So some people can, there, there's a quantitative method through which you can assign an ideological position. So sort of you put every congressional member on a line based on how they voted in the past. And you can see how much this distribution is spreading out. And that indeed also is occurring. However, when we ask is this polarized Congress a outcome of a polarized public? That question becomes more complicated because there are two popular measures of polarization for the public, and they show different results. So the first is sorting that is asking how much do people's party identification correspond to their liberal conservative sort of ideology spectrum. So it it used to be you can have a liberal Republican and a conservative Democrat. So people can be on the left side of the space, but identify with the Republican Party. That is happening increasingly less. So if we measure polarization by sorting, yes, it's happening. Um, there are also many scholars that argue sorting is happening to a lesser extent 
in the public than in the Congress. Also, a, a not, an outcome of sorting is if you take out people who, who already identify as Democrat and Republicans, and you track how people who identify with these two parties change over time, you'll see the, the center of the two parties drifting apart in the public. So that is the outcome of sorting. However, it gets more complicated when you look at the second measure of polarization, which is called dispersion. That is, if I'm blind about who identifies with what party, I just look at everybody in the country and look at how they're distributed on this liberal to conservative space. And there is very little signal about systematic changes over time. So it's really not clear if this distribution changes at all. So there were data that showed fluctuations, but no systematic trend. So the most likely picture of what's going on in the public is that the people have somewhat a one-humped distribution with more people in the middle. However, the way people associate political parties with their liberal conservative positions have been changing. I wonder, in thinking back to the, uh, episode nine with Mirta and talking about how people project a local information bias based on you know their their personal networks and then onto the global situation. I wonder how much of that, the difference in the distribution between the American public at large and Congress has to do with the fact that in Congress, you're sitting in the same room with people that you know are of a different opinion. And sort of like, you know, calling back to this paper on, you know, the in-between category that like, there's something about people having to define themselves against someone else sitting across the hall from you that is driving this phenomenon in, in Congress. Just noting that we haven't actually gotten to the satisficing model yet, but I'd love to speculate and see what y'all think is going on there. Why there's this difference at that level or between those two levels? Yeah. Um, so the satisficing model proposes one way in which this can happen. The way you said, like if politicians are motivated to distinguish themselves from those of the other party sounds very plausible too. I haven't studied that mechanism in itself. Somebody else probably has. I'll, I'll just give a brief summary of what the satisfying model is doing. Um, so the, the backstory of that was there was a really classic model called the Downsian model for parties. And it gives a very paradoxical result. It says, if everybody votes and if everybody vote to the party closest to them, and if the parties want to win most votes, both parties want to be in the middle of the spectrum. That is not what's happening currently in, in, in politics. And the one question is, oh, why would that happen? And also, what can explain this disconnect between the voters and the party? It seems like the voters themselves, if we take out their party label, they haven't changed very much. And uh, how can you have voters with mostly somewhat moderate policy positions and you get parties that totally not representative of them. So the model assumes the satisfying behavior. Okay, let me back up one second. <laughs> okay. So in most mathematical model that study voting, um, they assume people have some objective function they want to maximize, they pick the party that maximizes that objective. However, in psychology, there's a lot of evidence for a satisfying behavior that is when people are faced with a complex situation, they don't 
optimize. However, they settle for what is good enough. So the biggest um, novelty of this model is that it gives a quantitative translation of this bounded rational behavior. So we are able to put that into mathematical forms. And then we let the parties optimize their position in response to satisfying voters. So in this model, for most parameters, we actually predict the parties will want to stabilize at some finite separation. They won't want to collide together. Like the Downsian model said, the intuition about where they stabilize is intuitively can be can be explained as two things. One is so basically when you when people do satisfying, if you're too far from them, um, the the voter may feel they're not represented at all by either party, and they just don't turn out to vote at all. So if you are too much on the tail, you lose the people in the middle. However, when you go to the middle, you one lose the people on the tail. Two, you need to compete with the other party uh, for the middle voters. So there is a, a balance between where you are, and then uh, the distance between the parties uh, is determined by one parameter. That is sort of how how much ideological purity there is in the party. So whether your party is appealing broadly or appealing narrowly, like how inclusive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we we measure that parameter by the ideological spread of the congressional members of that party. So we so we took that method that put every congressional member on a line and we look at how widely they're being spreading out. So we infer the parameter from data that way. And we know um, the model, both the model and the data say that if you have narrower parties, then the parties would want to be placed further apart to win more votes. So that the winning strategy becomes a more polarized political landscape if ideological purity is increasing. So to Henrik, you know, I'm thinking about the conversation I had with Rajiv Sethi very early on, like episode seven of this show, when he was talking about stereotypes and how we lean on stereotypes more when our decision making is uh, under some kind of spatiotemporal pressure, you know, the, the dark alley in which you're meeting someone and you have to make a snap decision. And we lean on, you know, our conditioning and heuristics rather than getting to sit down. And this is like classic anecdotally in terms of, oh, I'm not a racist. I have one black friend, you know, like I know this one person, I, you know, I have dinner with them and they're great. But the rest of this out group is not. And so I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of, like Vicky was just saying, you know, as the decision becomes more complex, people tend to break down. And I think this would be a good spot, actually, just to dig in a little bit more about the details of what you're talking about in this area. When, when we're talking about bounded rationality, what is bounding this rationality? Because this is a big thing also with the work that SFI does in economics and like the way that we model economic systems. So I, I don't know if you care to, to be our tour guide down this particular lazy river, uh, but I think you know, laying out some basic stuff about bounded rationality and, and then how it's determining sort of where people start leaning on cognitive props in these kinds of decisions would be really interesting. So I want to push back a little bit about this, about the bounded rationality thing, because um, I think that uh, 
the the general kind of view of, of or or in many sense when people hear boundary rationality they, they think about well, there's something less than russian i don't think that is true uh because we talk about optimality we talked about optimizing but in real life we cannot optimize there is no objective function that can be optimized there is no way we can we can ever come to to the normative correct answer in many situations. We do actions here, we do decisions, and we do not know what the future will bring. We do not know that when we make the decision. But we can we can define other aspects of uh, and other norms, other rationality norms. So, for example, how well do different decision strategies work in different environments? Try to figure out. When is it good to, to use satisfying? When is it good to just good, use one good reason decision-making, for example? Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. And the thing is to, to try to understand when they work and when they do not work. And in many real-life situations, there is no way we can, we can calculate what the, what the maximizing decision would be because there is no way we can know it. There is a, there is a non-quantifiable uncertainty there. Even though we would like to have a quantifiable answer there, but we cannot. We cannot do it. <laughs> uh, so, so that's that's um, one thing. So, so when I was at the Max Planck Institute in, in Berlin, the main one of the main foundations there is boundary rationality, Herbert Simon's ideas, but the specific interpretation of, of Herbert Simon's ideas that that is it's not lesser rational. It is it's as good or even better. It could be a better guide to rational decision making in real life than actual maximizing decision making so that's one thing so uh, uh, yeah, so that's one thing I, I just want to add one thing with polarization and and beliefs and actions and decisions i think also there is a, this distinction we need to think about that you have beliefs and you have actions and uh, of course it could be that you can have a belief and you're ingrained a belief but the strategic circumstances at the at the point of when you make a decision in parliament of course can make you you must make an action must make a decision you must vote for something because your party colleagues says so but you haven't actually changed your belief it's just a strategic thing that you do in that circumstances and it can also be the same here i said i am a, i am a republican i've been a republican my whole life but i i just i don't like trump so I'm going to vote for Biden just uh, anyway. But as soon as it comes a reasonable Republican again, I'm going to vote Republican again. So, so we have this kind of thing that you have the beliefs and you have the actions, decisions that, that needs to be both whole. You need to consider both at, at the time because uh, 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 different measures, uh, if you just ask people about beliefs, you can get one reason. And you see if their actions and voting behavior, can, they can look totally uh, incompatible. But you need to look down to the circumstances of the specific action of voting and the circumstances that when that took place, why that person might have voted that way also. Yeah, that reminds me when I was talking with David Krakauer for the transmission series about uh, David Kinney's article for that series, where he was he was talking about how scientists want to offer to policymakers the spectrum you know, that it's like, this is how much uncertainty we have about the situation. This is the rigorous way of talking about it. But a spectrum of possibilities is less useful when you're making a policy decision than this is the most likely outcome. And so there, there's this uh, sort of 
philosophical problem of how scientific advice even happens. I mean, and and like you said, this is true not just in ad- advising policymakers. This is true in selecting them. That you know the the contextuality of these decisions, you know, forces a decision in certain ways that seems, I think, you know, to call back to the the beginning of this conversation, very much like what's going on socially in terms of the excluded middle in these in these at the group level, which is a seemingly inescapable tragedy in some respects, you know, that like, maybe, like you said earlier, Vicky, that, you know, what we're looking at is we just need better models. I know that to like instantiate them in society, you know, like, uh, I know a lot of people that are pushing for rank choice voting as like one way of getting around this kind of a problem. But so that brings that brings us, Henrik, to the last piece I wanted to talk about with the two of you, which is the piece you lead authored on harvesting the wisdom of crowds for election predictions using the Bayesian truth serum. And I think for those who didn't hear your conversation with Mirta, I think it makes sense to give a little bit of background on this paper, yeah. you know, to talk about how different kinds of polling happens and and sort of the relative strengths of different kinds of election predictions polling and how that reveals through those different methods the ways that people are taking into consideration all of these different contextual restraints you know it shows how people are making these decisions yeah so the last few years or has actually been a ongoing conversation or discussion uh, about polling is that uh it's lots of problems with it. And in the last few years, we've seen uh, uh, the, the response uh, frequency of, of different surveys that gives that you, when you try to uh, contact people, is very low. You can get less than 10% is going to answer your, your surveys. And what type of results can you get from 10% when you try to uh, sample people? It's going to be a very biased sample. So there's been lots of discussion and also Last few years, there's been some some uh, rather uh, misprediction, rather uh, serious mispredictions in terms of elections in Brexit and so on and so forth a few years ago, uh, and also discussion about the lo- uh, last uh, presidential election about how polling actually uh, didn't work well on the on the uh, national level. It worked well, but actually in in important states uh, in the U.S., uh, the polling didn't work at all. So traditionally, polling questions ask about own intention. So who are you going to vote for? That's the traditional way of doing it. But we can also uh, try to leverage the wisdom of crowds of of people and ask them uh, who they think are going to win the election. This type of question has actually been asked for a long time. They started so far back as the 1930s in different surveys. But they haven't been widely uh, adopted by the polling industry. And all this aggregated uh, results, all the polls you see now, they are uh, mostly based on, on own voting intentions. Sometimes they report this also, the election winner expectation questions, but mostly as a curiosity uh, and uh, so on, not as a real prediction. But the thing is that this uh, um, winner expectation questions, they are being shown to actually predict election outcomes very well. But they are not foolproof. And one thing that is usually leveraged against this kind of question is that you can, the problem is that you, it's a risk that you have a bias there that you project your own uh, own voting intention towards it. So you get a bias that way. Um, 
A few years ago, uh, we started to think about how the, your immediate social environment kind of affects you and how you can use information you have about your immediate social environment to make predictions about different characteristics in the, in the population, for example. Uh, and that led to a theory that I'm not going to talk about here, but it led us to developing questions that not ask about who you're going to win the election, but you ask, who do you think your friends are going to vote for? That's an interesting question because that the idea there is that one thing that it does is that you can reach people that might not answer this poll question, so these survey questions. Uh, so you basically both enhance the sample, you ask one person, but you get the sample size becomes larger and you can reach other people that you maybe not be able to reach. So we try these uh, questions now in several different elections and show that they outperform consistently their own voting intentions. And they can also uh, outperform the win reputation questions. So that's a background to, to the work we're doing now together with with uh, uh, researchers from uh, MIT and University of Southern California. We now have a, a, a project uh, where we're trying to use these uh, different questions together with other uh, more sophisticated ways of, of integrating information from these different sources of, of, uh, of information present in these questions to be able to make these predictions more accurate. But in addition to that, we also try to understand uh, what type of factors behind uh, problems with polling. So there's lots of talk about shy voter effect, for example. So I don't want to admit who I'm going to vote for. If there's some some shameful candidate and I uh, that I will vote for, but if someone asks me, oh, maybe I'm not. I, no, I don't want to do that. And we think that that, for example, asking about how others will vote, for example, your social circle might be less less susceptible to these kind of, of biases or, or, or um, reluctance to answer questions. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, there have been uh, arguments that these winner expectation questions can have uh, large biases in them also, can also affect the social circle questions. So the, for example, there's talk about especially now in the election here, but also in other elections, that, that it could be that um, some of the candidates or the government in the country are thought about that they can do something before the election that will change the outcome. So they think something like magical Trump effect, for example. He will do something. He will, he will change something. He will propose something that makes the landscape change totally, and he will win. And then these kind of um, expectations can they then creep into this winner expectation questions which might bias them because it might not happen which might might make them less reliable in, in for example in this election in the us and there's been arguments in the in the in now in, in in the media about that so we try to understand now try to ask other survey questions so we are asking a, a big um, national representative sample of respondents, uh, up to 5,000 people around the US, about uh, these three different questions, own voting questions, the election winner expectation questions, and what we call social circle questions, when you ask about how do you think your immediate social environment will, will vote. But in addition to that, we also try to understand here that if people think that 
that uh, uh, something is going to happen just before the election uh, that will change the results somehow, or uh, how how much discomfort do they feel by by divulging this information about who they will vote for, and how much uh, um, discomfort do they feel when they are asked about uh, their friends and family how they are going to vote. So we try to understand what can affect these different polling questions. Uh, and then in addition to that, we have done more or less, as I said in the beginning, um, more or less sophisticated ways of, of uh, aggregating this information. And we're actually now working on, on other ways to integrating information, all these three questions. So we're actually now um, writing a new version of, of, of this paper that you mentioned that have a new and exciting way of doing this. But uh, it's not, it's not um, prime time yet, but we're working on it. <laughs> While we're awaiting the new paper, I, I, I would love to dig in a little bit because I just think that this is, a, this is like a cool technique here. You know, one of your co-authors on this, uh, Drazen Pelek, has written extensively mm. about this, this technique, the Bayesian truth serum, and how you help ensure that you're getting honest answers in polling when you don't have a way of independently verifying that the person is giving you an honest answer. So I'd love to hear you provide an exegesis of this for listeners, if you will. How does this actually work in your study? And then in what situations does it seem to improve the quality of the polling or where does it seem like it's not helping? Yeah, so it seems, so, so the thing is, I mean, this patient truth theorem, uh, this done, as you said, it's developed by the Russian press and uh, it developed that in, in the mid 2000s. It's a science article about that. It's been used now in several different areas. And it's basically a scoring method, as you said, for incentivizing truthful in the sense of honest, informed, and careful answers to any, any type of, of uh, non verifiable uh, question. And I, this is pretty technical, so yes. <laughs> yes that, that, so, so basically, also in a very simple way, is that it 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 uses the election winner expectation. So so you use either you use the question uh, that you asked, the own intention question, or the social circle question. The same you use the own intention question, but we we are using also the winner expectation question, and and basically overweight participants who provide more informed, more careful own intention questions. So, so, so that is basically what it's doing. And that is a, a technical thing about it that can be shown that is consistent uh, with the Bayesian updating and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, what the basically does is it overweight participants will provide more informed and careful own intentions. And it uses the own intention question to do that in a, in a, in a clever way. And we see that it actually works. Not in certain circumstances, so for example, if we if we uh, use uh, the winner election winner expectations uh, to overweight social circle expectations questions, then we see that 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 always almost always improves over and above the social circle questions. So we get an improvement. So we get improve. We have we have own intention that predicts something. And then we have winner expectations, uh, maybe a little bit better, but then even better than that is the social circle question. But we can, even above that, we can improve the social circle questions even more by applying this patient truth theorem. Uh, but you, you, know, you mentioned in this paper that it doesn't really improve predictions for the margins of the winner. No. 
so, so that's something we're trying to figure out what it is. But this, uh, the margin in the US is, is also particular for a two-party system that they use the, the margins in this way. And, and if you have a many-party system and look at the, how it predicts overall different parties in other countries, it would be a different view of it. But we still try to figure out exactly what is going on with the, with the, uh, with the margin predictions. So. so maybe it's just my privilege of being this close to this kind of research that makes me feel like a lot of these discoveries are, are, are formalizing intuitions about how politics works in this country. What do you feel has surprised you? about the findings that, that we've discussed today or, or um, you know, what it reveals about the way that people make decisions or what it might suggest about the you know, future political landscape of the United States? Okay, I'll go first. I guess one thing that I've learned that felt surprising that I wouldn't have known before I started doing this is... We always talk about how U.S. is a divided country, how we're so polarized, and it, it makes it feel as if people who belong to these two groups are just very different people who really dislike the other side. However, there's a distinction between which group you identify with versus what you actually think about concrete things. And I feel the group identity is making us feel that we are more different than we actually are when we really boil it down to what we think on actual stuff. And the analogy I like to draw is with sports teams. So you can have Yankees fan and Red Sox fan, for example. There are two groups and they have a strong identity of the group and they think they don't think well of members of the other group. However, if you really look at them as people, and how what they think about the sports, and they may not be that different. So there is like this sort of fandom, I suspect, in what we're seeing. So what we're seeing in the group conflict is very real, but it doesn't mean people of the two groups are at the core different people. Yeah, that seems like an important takeaway. While things are in some sort of social centrifuge right now, kind of a a bomb on a wounded country in that respect. Henrik, what about you? Oh, that's a good question. So I, I think, so I started out doing research in individual decision-making. So individuals doing, we sit in the lab, <laughs> make decisions. But the last few years, I come to realize that that is the most important thing that we have. And this also been done, informed by, by all this social structure research, is the, the social environment and how important the social environment is. And that we, we need to put even more effort into trying to understand the, the influences your immediate and the larger social environment has on your belief and your decision making. Uh, but I'm also surprised how well actually people know the social environment. Uh, and I think we that I come to realize is that we cannot talk about individuals as an isolated island by themselves. We need to talk about their, their network. And of course, that's what we talk about all the time at SFI. That's the most important thing. We need to see things in their perspective and, and their network connections. And I think that is the, the way we need to go forward with 
especially in psychology, which has been not so much interested in the actual social connections between people and investigating the actual reality of your social environment. Uh, and we have mostly been interested in reading vignettes of other people. Tom is this and that, Louise is like this and that, and then you have some reaction to that. We haven't actually investigated the real social environment of people. And I think that's the <laughs> major insight. And also that uh, in order to understand political behavior, we need to even more focus on, on your immediate social environment and the impact you have on, on individuals. Yeah, you know, to that point, just looking over the USC Dornsife election website, which we'll link to in the show notes, I love that there's you can break down all the different polling graphs that you know you're taking and how the further you get from the independent party affiliation being I guess in the middle you get the the strong republicans are saying Trump's going to win by a lot the lean republicans are predicting less yeah. and the same is going on in the opposite way on the the democratic side but then you you've got it right in the middle you've got that band of independence or no affiliation where the margin that they're predicting is so small, it's within the gray area of like the, the demilitarized zone of, of no statistically significant results. Yeah, I don't know if you agree, but that seems to speak to what you were just saying, that it's sort of a, there is, again, to, you know, to cast back all the way to the first paper we discussed here, that there's a sort of like optical illusion in which it's like hard to see into and maybe even like out of the middle in, in these situations. Yeah, and there also on the website, they will see this kind of quite big discrepancy between the different predictions from these different questions. So if I look at the own intention, it looks like Biden has quite a comfortable lead. But then if you look at winner expectations, then that goes to a very basically non-significant difference between uh, the candidates. And then we have the social circle question, which then so a little bit bigger lead, but still kind of narrow lead for, for Biden. And that can then have many, that could be the truth, <laughs> but it could also be a, a, a reflection of what I talked about earlier about that people either expect that something's going to happen before the election. The, that happened in 2016, everyone was surprised it's going to happen again. So this winner expectation question maybe underestimate the, the Biden lead. But we think that the social circle question has, is less susceptible to that. So if I would bet my money on something, I would bet on the social circle question, given the <laughs> results that we have earlier. So just because we've reached the top of the tree and we're you know, touching the sky here, I'd like to end with kind of a more speculative question for the two of you, which is you mentioned Vicky and, and Henrik in this piece on falling through the cracks that, again, the boundaries of where we delineate our social groups have changed over time. I mean, if you look at, you know, LGBTQI, that whole thing has exploded over the last few years, you know, like the the census is including so many different racial answers than it used to. And I'm curious, you know, to me, this looks sort of like if I zoom way out, it looks like the tree of life following some sort of maximal entropy production algorithm, you know, where it's like, you know, evolution is sort of through the, the you know, different adapted anatomies, trying to solve the puzzle of how to model its own effects, you know, that it's like the biosphere, it's, you know, modeling itself the way that we model the economy from within it. And so something like this is like, what do you imagine based on your work for the future of the human, you know, the, the American political system? Do you think that 
we're going to continue to have a, a two-party system? Or do you think do you think that we have a realistic bid at going more the way of like the Australian parliament where, you know, there are like three major parties and seven minor parties? Do you think that we're going to order like call to, you know, Stephanie Crabtree's work, uh, the essay that she wrote for the transmission series about the, the decline of Chacoan culture and how certain things in more sort of stable times are able to kind of homogenize and conglomerate because of economies of scale. But then if you disturb those systems, then they break apart. And so I'm, you know, I'm wondering, you know, whether what we're seeing right now is actually sort of the foreshadowing of a fragmentation of American political parties as a way of addressing some of the problems that we're seeing right now. And what are your thoughts on all of that? Can I give you a somewhat rambling answer, Michael? I think that was a rambling question. So yeah. Okay. okay. I'll give you two answers to like two aspects of a question. One, are we likely to see a multi-party system? Unfortunately, I'm not optimistic because the with the role of election as it is, the plurality winner-take-all election is known to favor two big parties. While in most of Europe, they have proportional representation. So you win 5% of the vote, you get 5% of the seats. So the system in, in the way it's set up is helping the two-party landscape persist. And then on the local level, there are also a number of bills recently introduced that make third parties or, or independent candidates uh, make their lives harder. Like you have to gather tens of thousands of signatures or, or things like that. I think it'll be I think it will be really helpful if we get more parties, but I'm not very optimistic that this will happen. I think the rank choice voting will be really helpful if that can be implemented on a bigger scale. I know there are many state and local elections using that and I I think that will really help the representation problem. And then I'm gonna give a rambling answer to your second question about <laughs> what we see, the political future. So like currently one one reason why like this this world seems such a mess is because you have very strong group identities and there's a very strong um idea of like there's like immigrants are seen as the personal representation or the the scapegoat of many problems on either scene um so it it, it goes back to recently read about like a social theory, which is still a hypothesis, is not confirmed yet, but I've been thinking along this line. It's about how, where these kind of things come from, and it's this strong group mentality, populism, and this basic want to be separated from, from other parts of the world. Uh, there's a hypothesis that this is a response to the increased globalization and urbanization we've seen over the years, that uh, the world is increasingly connected. And then that's why we not only see Brexit, but we also see, you know, calls for Scottish independence and, and in the Catalan. So that is really groups trying to draw a line between this themselves and the interconnected world to preserve their identity. And some people also argue there are also groups of people who are left not as better off as the people who really benefited from the increased globalization. And then these, when these people are unhappy, and then you have a, a political candidate coming and say, 
you are unhappy not because of this big systematic problem nobody know how to solve. You are unhappy because of these people, and they give a face to the reason of your problem, and that becomes a very compelling narrative. So I feel like addressing what we're seeing is a very big systematic question about this whole economic trajectory we've been on since the industrial evolution. That's my wild speculation. I don't know. Exactly how to approach it, and think that that's something I'm thinking about right now. But I wish I have an answer. I don't, but I'd love people to to discuss more on on that line. Yeah, Henrik, what about you? What are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, the first question about the multi-party, I think, is wicked. Of course, the election system in the U.S. that that is basically guaranteed to produce uh, something like a two-party system. And also in terms of the history and the context, in, con- in the context of the constitution, the amendments, all of that together in the history and, and uh, is, this seems very unlikely it's going to be uh, an exchange. Uh, I mean, that's just not going to happen, <laughs> I think, uh, at least for, for many, many years, because there's so many things that need to change for that to change. But then what's going to, what can happen in the political landscape? That's, uh, that's another question. So uh, the future, I think the bit that the Vicky started to say about the connectedness. But I think also we th- we feel that this is a messy situation now. But uh, it could it be that that. Uh, we feel it's more messy because we get more information. We mo- we know more. I mean, in early times, we had less uh, information about what our, our leaders, our elected leaders, or other citizens in the country uh, did. Now we get updates every second about everything. We, we get information about everything. So everything looks just more messy. <laughs> so is, could it just be that it was equally messy uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but we just didn't know it. Uh, and uh, we get less information and here. We get so much uh, change change information in every second, so it just looks messy. But it might be that, that in under other administrations and uh, other times, it was just as messy, but we just didn't know it. Yeah, when I... Or, <laughs> when I when I spoke to uh, Carl Bergstrom and, and Jevin West said something similar last week when they were Carl was saying he doesn't think that you know he thinks that largely the the accelerating news cycle is a manufactured phenomenon and that it doesn't actually impress upon us the need to make decisions at that much faster than we did before the the you know web 2.0 that you know that that it makes sense to he's like good good new, good information from two days ago is more valuable than unreliable information today and it sounds like you know he was kind of advising that we we slow down we you know we exert patience that we think more we allow uh, the the latencies inherent in our collective sense making and decision making processes to uh, we give them time. You know, we give we give time for these things to percolate through the system rather than, you know, trying to, you know, look at 
the like zoom in and look at the coastline of Britain with our like inch stick or I guess, you know, our centimeter ruler, you know, that, so it's, you know, certainly you see a lot of fluctuation in the, uh, the polling and, you know, when you're polling people as frequently as you are in the USC Dorn life study, I don't know. That's probably just probably just cut that all out. Cause you left that you it's like everything you just said was great. Um, it's all super interesting stuff. I, I'm really glad that I got to talk to the two of you today. Do you have any final thoughts before we leave people that you, anything you want to sort of uh, leave lingering in folks' minds when they sign out here? Vote in November. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I, can, I can tell people that Wuhan, besides having COVID, it also has really good breakfast noodles. Great lakes and cherry blossoms. Or actually, I cannot say that because I'm a foreign citizen, so you, you cannot use my. It's a it's a it's a interference by a foreign entity if I say something. <laughs> I think that's actually true. Really? I, I, uh, if, if it's something to do with the election, uh, one cannot come up with. So a foreign citizen cannot tell someone else to go vote. I think that's that's not. Okay. In the U.S., I think so at least. Hold on, let's check. Can yeah, yes, yes. a foreign citizen <laughs> encourage? I thought like you can't put money into it, but you can do things. Is what I remembered, but I I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah, I'll look into that. I yeah, <laughs> yeah. but well, it, this has been fun and I really appreciate the two of you taking the time to discuss your research. I hope that this has been as illuminating for our listeners as it has been for me. And I wish you the best with following up, you know, furthering your, your processes of discovery. Thank, Thank you. you, Michael. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.